So turn in your Bible to Mark 9, verses 9 through 13. I have chosen the uh, title of Suffering and Contempt based on language straight from the text of Scripture today. Right down in verse 12, it says, And how is it written that the Son of Man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? So suffering and contempt. Really, this whole service is focused on the crucifixion of Christ, His burial and resurrection in power over the grave and over death. Let me read the Scripture. It's not a long passage. Again, Mark 9, 9 through 13. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written that the Son of Man... Excuse me, let me read that again. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Father, thanks for this opportunity, these few minutes together, just to slow down and listen to your word this morning. We pray, O Lord, that you would be the teacher. We depend on you. You will lead us into all truth through your word. So please teach us, O Lord. We know that you have comprised just the perfect, perfect congregation today sovereignly to bring us together to think about this on the very first Sunday of the year. Set our minds straight. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's read the text one more time with just a few observations and then, then we'll sum up some of the major points of our our text today. So the context is obviously as they were coming down from the mountain, that's the transfiguration event that we looked at last week where Jesus started to shine brightly and they were dazzled and Peter, not knowing what to say, decided to say something. And uh, the whole idea of setting up some booths so that they could all stay there for a while, which really wasn't a bad idea, but uh, that wasn't really the point. The point of it all was what God said at this event. He showed Jesus to be the glory of God shining forth, and the point of that transfiguration is to listen to Jesus. Uh, Verse 7, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud This is my beloved son. Listen to him. It's a command to listen to the words of Jesus and listen to the work and ministry of who Jesus is. And then 
Elijah and Moses were gone, and it was Jesus only on the mountaintop. Uh, remember how Elijah and Moses summarize the bulk of the Old Testament. Elijah, a prophet, so the prophets, and Moses, of course, is the author of the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, or the Torah, or the law. So the law and the prophets are fellowshipping with Jesus on the mountaintop. They don't contradict each other. Jesus is the fulfillment of what we call the Old Testament. It all points to him. Uh, One of our songs said, he fulfilled the law, and that is a technical expression, meaning he kept the law of God perfectly. Uh, And yet also, all of the literature points to Jesus. It's about Jesus uh, preparing us for him. And, And so it's symbolic that God comes forth and says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. He's the source of truth. And then, poof, Elijah and Moses are gone. And I just like the words here in this English text. It says, with them, but Jesus only. So Jesus was only there alone. He, he is the final revelation uh, from God to us. In these last days, God has spoken to us through his son, the author of Hebrews says at the very beginning of his book. So they're coming down from this ecstatic retreat. It was really amazing. They had some experiences up there uh, that they could not forget forever, their whole lives. Um, And yet, as they come down, it says, verse 9, and as they were coming down, just again, I I love how we see the educational philosophy of Jesus. He, He never really... You don't see him sitting down in a classroom with his disciples. Uh, every once in a while he'll sit down and teach thousands of people, yes, but generally most of the education happened while life happened. A very sort of biologically based uh, educational philosophy. They were walking, and, and he charged them to tell no one what they had seen. We're going to look at that in a minute uh, because that's happened before four or five times in the Gospel of Mark. And then he throws out this beautiful word here, until the Son of Man, Jesus always, often, often, not always, but often referred to himself as the Son of Man. Again, that's communion. When we take the bread, we're saying that the Son of God became the Son of Man and is the Son of Man for us uh, forever and still the Son of God. And this Son of Man... The interesting thing he says here in verse 9, until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Now, this is huge. He's said this before to them, uh, but not very often. Uh, but it is quite amazing. Now, the last time he actually said this is kind of interesting in this context. Because if you look at it, just, just you know, f- from their experience a few days ago, a few days ago, remember, Look at verse 31 of chapter 8. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now Peter took offense at this. And he said this plainly, it says. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. We've talked about this a great deal quite an amazing little event. He, he started to uh, 
reinterpret Jesus, trying to put his own values on Jesus. I'm going to, I'm going to tell you how things should be, Jesus. I'm going to rebuke you. And then, of course, Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. And look at verse 33. We're more than likely going to come back to this if we have time real quickly. It's powerful. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God. The command there is you're not, you're, you're, the word is you're not thinking God's thoughts. You're, you're thinking the things of man. So he was reprimanded harshly. So maybe it's a little wonder that while they were interested in what he said about rising from the dead, they didn't sort of dare to broach that subject with him. You know, because the last time that didn't go so well. uh, Peter was called Satan, and he was harshly reprimanded. Again, not positive, but it's kind of interesting. Because they go for sort of a less controversial subject. What about Elijah? We just saw him on the hill there. We just saw him. And the scribes, your enemies, they have been running around saying, Again, I'm kind of, you're kind of reading a little bit in here, but it seems to be that's what they're saying. Notice what he says. Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? See, verse 11. The scribes are saying, this, Jesus can't be the Messiah because before the Messiah comes, Elijah has to come. Uh, that's what the enemies are saying, the scribes. And, and so they say, well, why do they say that, Jesus? And so he confirms to them, verse 12. Yes, yes. Elijah does come first to restore all things. Not that Elijah himself will be the restorer of all things, but that he'll be the big sign that restoration is beginning. He's initiating. He's preparing the way for the Messiah, preparing the way for the Lord. That's a a wonderful thing. We've been talking about Bordeaux, which is in France. I don't know anything about this, but I have vague vague thoughts about this. But (laughs) I understand that when uh, the troops uh, came in to to release Paris from Hitler's domination, those first few troops that marched into the city, there was great joy and great freedom. And, you know, those first few troops first few troops didn't bring the freedom, but they, they showed that it was really coming. Look, they're here. And in a way, that's what Elijah is, is to be. Um, that's verse 12. Come first to restore all things. And, but notice what Jesus does. He wants to get them back to a more important subject. Uh, Elijah's important. But what about me? <laughs> what about the Messiah? And, and, so he, he, and he asks them a question. He wants them to ponder, wants them to think. And how is it written that the Son of Man, of the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? That's what he really wants them to think about. It, it, the Elijah thing is important. Um, but what's really important, what we really should be pondering is, who is Jesus? What did he do? Why did he go through the suffering and contempt? Why do the scriptures speak thus? So verse 13, 
he confirms the Elijah. He says, but I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Who is this? Well, uh, I think it's in Matthew. He records the same thing. He says, then the disciples knew, oh, he's talking about John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the Elijah who came to prepare the way for the Lord. Uh, he's a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. And how did he prepare for the Lord's coming? By preaching repentance. Repent of your sins. Turn to Jesus. Uh, he is here. The Messiah is coming. And actually, while I'm just looking at the text, sort of analyzing the text here before we uh, summarize it up, this phrase, as it is written of him, is really interesting. Why? Because we don't know exactly what scripture Jesus is referring to. Uh, there, you look at all the commentators and none of them say anything about it. <laughs> Except a few say, you know, we don't know what he's referring to here. Which is kind of exciting to me. Uh, it's like there's this mystery here. Jesus has, has some scriptures in mind that he doesn't tell us uh, exactly what he's talking about. Probably the front runner is um, who who was Elijah? Well, he was a real guy, right? He was a real prophet. And if you look at First Kings, you don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. First Kings nineteen. It's he's in Elijah's in horrible struggle uh, with with Ahab and his lovely wife Jezebel. You've heard of Jezebel and his lovely her lovely husband, Ahab. They were the king and the queen of Israel at this time. And he has just been up on Mount Carmel. Uh, Carmel by the Sea is named after this place. And had that big showdown with the, uh, the priests of Baal. Remember that huge showdown? And then the priests of Baal got slain. He killed them all. Uh, a whole bunch of them. I can't remember how the number, but a whole bunch, okay? And Jezebel and Ahab are really upset at him. And so this is 1 Kings 19, 1. It says, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. He came home and said to his wife, guess what happened at the office, dear? <laughs> and now Jezebel was a very calm lady. Uh, and how he had killed all the prophets with a sword. Then Jezebel, this is, this is the queen of Israel. It's crazy. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods, notice this, she's not even a monotheist. <laughs> How does this travesty happen? Sad. So may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow, I'm going to kill you. Then he was afraid. This isn't the best chapter in Elijah's life. He ran away from Jezebel. But Jezebel never did get to kill him, but she threatened to kill him. And Herodias, you know, Herod's wife, did to Elijah, John the Baptist, what Jezebel could never do, did not get to do. So that's probably the best guess on as it is written of him. Elijah the prophet was treated very badly and there was a promise that he would be killed by a, an evil woman, and he was. All right, but let's summarize. We have 15 or so minutes before the noon bell rings. Not that we 
are released by the bell. Sometimes you're saved by the horn. <laughs> um, but I have three points to summarize some of, the, some of the things we should probably be thinking about from this text of Scripture, suffering and con- contempt. I already mentioned this as I read this. I want to start with this. Observe how God works. Now, as you come to the Bible, it's a text on who God is and how he does stuff, how he works. And because we can get confused. When we look at things, we look at life, we say, well, where's God? How, how, there can't be a God because there's so much chaos and so much delay and bad things happen. Uh, so what's going on here? And I find this in this interesting thing. As I said, that we've already run into this several times. Verse 9, And he charged them to tell no one what they had seen. Let's look at a couple of other times. Uh, I didn't count them but I'm thinking it's about five times in Mark. Um, but let's look at the first one, Mark 1, 43, the very first chapter. Uh, Jesus is saying something very similar. He cleanses a, a leper, a beautiful event, amazing miracle, display of power. You know, How can you take somebody who is withering away with a horrible disease and say some words uh, to him, and he is clean. He's washed. He's healed. It's a tremendous power. Uh, and see verse 42, and immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. Now verse 43, and Jesus sternly charged him. Remember, he charged his disciples. He sternly charged him and sent him away at once. And he said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. Verse 45, and he went out and began to talk freely about it. <laughs> it's like, whoo, okay. I got healed, but I don't care anything about what you just said to me. <laughs> I got what I really wanted and clean and this whole listening to Jesus was kind of lost. I was too excited. I mean, come on, I was a leper. Now I'm totally washed and clean and I don't have to run around hiding from people anymore. It's amazing. But here's my question. Here's what I think is so interesting about this. We're looking at Jesus who is God in the flesh. He has all power available to him. Couldn't he have just sovereignly arranged this that this leper could not say anything or would not say anything? He could have worked in his heart changed his mind, uh, and gotten his results. But he doesn't. He doesn't get it. He's working through what we call natural means. And at this point, it looks like, wow, that's not very effective. It looks like what he was hoping to have happen didn't happen. Uh, And this is how God works. Sometimes he does things and we don't understand why he does it that way. Why don't you come in and just, with awesome power, fix this? You know, like yesterday, get it done. Uh, The whole world has been languishing in pain and sorrow and the curse has been on the earth since the fall of man and God patiently has, he's going to fix it. He's going to do it in his time and in his way. But here, Jesus represents that reality. Look at 543, another example of this in Mark 5. 43, real quickly, it says, 
Um, this is a beautiful little event. This is another massive miracle. He, he raised a little girl from the dead. Uh, he, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. Verse 42, and immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. So as far as we know, they probably complied in that sense. What, what is he doing, by the way? here? He's literally controlling his popularity. Uh, he's to be crucified at a certain time in a certain you know, venue. He's up in Galilee. He literally is trying to control his popularity so that the enemies of, of Jesus don't get all sort of riled up unnecessarily before the time. And, and I find that really interesting because it's such a natural way, just human, popular, even political uh, way to try to control his popularity. When he's God, he could sovereignly do this through his other means, but he chooses to work through means. Uh, so the question is, how does God work? Uh, observe how he works. Sometimes he does work directly. I mean, he came to a leper and said, you know, do you want to be clean? Boom, you're clean. He came to a dead little girl, you know, 12 years old. I mean, no joking aside, but just think of this. It's as if he walked into a, a funeral and the girl's dead. And he says, Talitha Kumi, and she gets up. I mean, whew, direct, powerful. Uh, and she's hungry. She's ready to go. Uh, and, and yet then he switches to working through intermediate means, secondary causes. Uh, he says, now, you know, please don't tell anybody because I'm kind of trying to control my popularity here. Uh, it's just interesting how God works. He works directly or he works through uh, intermediate causes, secondary causes, but his uh, and often his work is slow and uh, haphazard looking. Uh, but he chooses to work as he pleases. Uh, Jesus one time got in trouble because he healed on the Sabbath. It happened actually several times, right? Uh, and his explanation for it was, "My Father is working until now, and I am working." Kind of opening up the sovereignty door. God is constantly at work. God works all things after the counsel of his own will. He, he can't take a Sabbath break because then suddenly nothing would exist. <laughs> you know, God is constantly working. He has to work. He's always sovereignly working. Uh, of him, through him, to him are all things. This is what the Word says. That's what sovereignty is. Uh, it doesn't exist on its own. It's derived and dependent upon him. Uh, so he, Jesus got in great trouble for that. They tried to kill him. Because he said, you're, you're uh, making yourself the son of God. My father is working until now, and I am working, Jesus said. And then here's Psalm 115.3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. So my point here is that we observe how God works, and we should be patient uh, with him and understand that sometimes he works slowly, Sometimes his efforts seem not to work at all. Uh, you know, sometimes people ignore him and do their own thing. And that's all a part of his sovereign plan as well. So that's point one, number one, observe how God works. Point number two is 
we should rejoice with humility that we understand the cross and the resurrection. I find it fascinating in this text that it's kind of, again, it's one of those texts where it just boldly puts out there the ignorance of the disciples, the disciples who wrote this. They put themselves in such sort of a humiliating light. They, they don't understand that Jesus came to die on the cross. They don't get that at all yet. You know? And so when it happens, they think it's a tragedy, and they go hide in an upper room. They're not ready for it. Uh, again, I, I don't think we should ridicule them. I think the reality is we're probably a lot more like that than we realize. You know, things that are yet to come, we don't fully understand. Um, and, and the fact that we understand it, the fact that we are given so much beautiful um, revelation about who Jesus is, is wonderful. I, I find it interesting as I read it uh, to you a few moments ago, how how they don't pursue the right question. You know, they, it's good that you're curious about Elijah, but guys, I just said I'm going to rise from the dead. You know, that's like more important than an obscure prophecy in the Old Testament. Not to demean the Old Testament, but uh, shouldn't you be pondering the suffering of the Son of Man and, and the contempt that he will undergo? I think this is what I'm driving at here too, is we should have curiosity. Let's, let's, let's pause and think, where should we be curious? Eleanor Roosevelt said, I think, this is kind of a funny thing to say, but I like it anyway, so let me put it on the screen. I think at a child's birth, if a mother could ask a fairy godmother to endow it with the most useful gift, that gift would be curiosity. You know, they were curious about it, but they did, weren't curious enough to ask Jesus. Jesus, what do you mean by this resurrection from the dead? Tell us more about that, oh Lord Jesus. And I think this, this prayer is important. Lord, help us to be more curious about the most important things. Uh, people get distracted by the least important things. And as believers, we should be curious about the most important things. Um, I put a, a, a picture of an octopus there because God has just made so many wonderful mysteries and uh, so many deep things to be curious about uh, that we should be curious people uh, looking at the great mystery that God has given us. For example, let's take just a minute to read some of the Scriptures that tell us the, what Jesus is about. Um, turn with me to Psalm 22, the suffering and contempt that Jesus would go under. We already referred to it earlier in the service. Psalm 22, uh, this should be very familiar to you. It's what Jesus quoted while he was on the cross. He quoted this psalm, a, part, a little part of it, uh, and we can presume that he was meditating on on all of it. I think that's a safe presumption. But he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, he's suffering. 
Oh my God, why? And Jesus says, look at the scriptures. Ask yourself, why? Why does it talk about the Son of Man suffering so much? Oh my God, I cry to you by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I can find no rest. Let's, let's look at another one. I'm trying to get through some of this rather quickly. Psalm 89, verse 39. There's so many treasures in Scripture. This is a, a, a talking about how Israel is rejected, but Israel becomes a symbol for their own Messiah. Psalm 89, verse 39. It says, But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. That is actually the word Messiah there. The word anointed is Messiah. And God the Father on the cross casts off His own Son and He's full of wrath against His own Son because of our sin. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled His crown in the dust. Uh, this is Jesus going through this contempt for us. So we are blessed to know this. Uh, and I, I threw the word humility in here because humility is so important. In other words, we know the truth and we can sort of have this sense of smugness. Like, well, we're better than other people because we know the truth. But no, this truth humiliates us, brings us to uh, our knees before God because we begin to understand what it takes to save us. We are wretches. We're sinful. We deserve the wrath of God. Why did Jesus suffer? Suffer. Ponder. Think. Think about why He suffered. He suffered because of our sin. He died for our sin, we read in the Scripture earlier. Humility grows with gratitude. The more grateful we are, the more humble we should be about this great gift of salvation. And that should lead us to evangelism. In other words, we want to tell other people. Uh, and a pastor from a previous generation, D.T. Niles, who died in 1970, put it this way, evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And we don't go out evangelizing saying, well, we're, we're high and holy, we, we know the truth, and we're here to impart the truth to you. And we're coming and saying, we found salvation in Christ. We're, we're, we've received the bread as beggars, and you can find it too. You can be uh, the fortunate one to believe in Jesus, trust in Him, and He will save you. So we should be thankful and humble that we know these things. And then finally, I've already made this point, which is fine because we're close to out of time. Think. Think. Jesus wants us to ponder and understand his suffering. That's what he says to us here in Mark 9. He asks them a question. He wants them to think this over. And how is it written? You know, study the Bible. Look for me. How is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? I already quoted it. I want to come back to it. The reprimand to Peter was, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. And the literal language there is, think, 
God's thoughts. Jesus saying, I want you to ponder the most important thing and be curious about that. Isaiah 53 is rich and wonderful. We're not, I'm just going to throw it out, out there. The, the word man of sorrows that we sang about. Jesus is a man of sorrows. What a name. And I also want to just point out contempt here. This word contempt. Contempt is the feeling that a person or a thing is beneath consideration, worthless, or deserving scorn. Jesus says the Son of Man will be treated with contempt. You know, in a few days, they'll spit at me. They'll mock me. They'll beat me. They'll put a crown of thorns on my head. Why is that? You know, is it, is it a random failure? Or is this God's perfect plan to fill, fulfill His plan of salvation for us? He's, he's treated with contempt because that's what we deserve. We deserve contempt before God. We lose our worth. We're, we're worthless. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me? In Jesus, our worth is restored. Uh, we, we are worthy of hell, and He, in His grace, makes us worthy of heaven. And so that Jesus was treated with contempt, uh, a, a person or a thing that is beneath consideration, that's what God did for us. Okay, so summarizing today's message is this. Observe how God works. And this is just a little bit, a little bit, when he says, don't tell anybody, he's kind of managing his popularity. That just symbolizes his whole ministry. Jesus came as a human being. He rides a borrowed donkey. He's rejected of men by his own. He's treated poorly. And you could look at this and say, oh, it's, it's, I can treat Jesus with contempt as well. He's, he's not this returning conqueror. He's not this great... God who comes back with a sword on his mouth and a big horse and all that that silliness that the Bible describes. We can just ignore him. He's nothing. Uh, and we're called as believers to observe how God works. Sometimes he works in a way that seems confusing and slow, but he has a perfect plan and he will work his plan out. And then we should rejoice with humility that we understand the cross and resurrection. We're blessed to be able to sing songs like we sang today, just freely. The disciples didn't have that. They didn't know this stuff. Uh, and even before that, Peter says this uh, about the prophets. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in the things that are now, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. We're blessed to have this wealth of revelation and to be able to know it well. And then finally, of course, point three, ponder and understand the suffering and contempt Jesus experienced. 